Uh, good morning. I'd love for you at this time to take out your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. Uh, if you're using my Bible, it's page 757. But that won't be helpful to anyone. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, it's three quarters of the way in your Bible. It's in the Minor Prophets. And uh, we'll read it to you in just a moment. Uh, But this book is set in the context of a 7th century B.C. uh, situation in uh, what was then, right, ancient Judah. And it was a very dark day. It was a dark day politically. It was a dark day economically. It was a dark day um, religiously. And in the middle of it, when you go through a dark day, if you go through a heavy season, you you want God to speak. You want God to show up. You want God to answer. So let me ask this question. You want God to speak. But how would you know if a person actually encountered the real God in a dark season? I mean, let's be honest. A lot of people claim that they know God, have seen God, been given a mystical experience from God. It usually turns into a book deal that you find at Barnes & Noble. But seriously, how would you know? How would you judge that person's claim? Seriously, how about for yourself? How would you know personally if God was speaking to you in a dark season or if it was just some sort of psychological, self-created wish fulfillment? Uh, I use that term intentionally because that's what the 19th century Sigmund Freud uh, described all of religion. He said all of religion was our unconscious mind creating systems to take away, I, take away guilt or provide some sort of powerful father figure. Uh, now, admittedly, on one hand, I do suspect that some lots of religion is uh, fabricated, Uh, In fact, that's all the rage today. It's encouraged even. You can be a Buddhist, Catholic, yogi, tree hugger, and no one seems to think that's weird. But on the other hand, I I think that the God of the Bible makes much more sense to those trying to fabricate a religion. And what I mean by that, just think so far of what we've seen in the book of Habakkuk. The book opens with Habakkuk looking out his window, and he's seeing violence and injustice in his country, in in Judah. And he looks at it, he sees God's people are lying, they're stealing, they're cheating. There's an evil king running a politically corrupt government. And so Habakkuk prays, he says to God, Oh Lord, I don't understand, God help, come and save your people. And God's first answer doesn't help. God says the solution to the mess that you're in, Habakkuk, is I'm going to bring the foreign nation Babylon to bring judgment on my people. That doesn't sound like wish fulfillment to me. And so Habakkuk prays again. He says, God, he says to God, I still don't get it. This is way too messy. This is too confusing. And so we look last week in chapter 2 to deal with his confusion. 
all of chapter 2 is God uh, laying out, here is my plan for history. There will be judgment on the enemies of God. There will be one day this whole transformation of the earth where God's, the knowledge of the glory of God will spread out everywhere. But even in the midst of that, he says, but not yet, Habakkuk. Not yet. In many ways, that's one of the last words that Habakkuk gets from God. But not yet. And so now we turn to Habakkuk's response to his, his dialogue with God, his prayer to God, his seeking of God. Now Habakkuk pauses and says, this is my response. If you notice in verse 1, it says this is the prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And then it says, on Shigonoth, which is probably, this is the melody that we're setting this prayer to. If you look at the end of chapter 3, it even ends with, for the director of music on my stringed instruments. And so he, his experience with God, his wrestling with God, his prayer to God is, was so powerful for him. He says, I'm, what I'm giving to the people is a song to sing. Prayers to say together. And hopefully it seeps into our soul and into our spirits so that it shapes the way we think and it shapes the way we live. So let's read this prayer and then we'll come back through it and look at it in parts. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigonoth. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. But he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath, you strode through the earth, and in anger, you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his arrows stormed out to scatter us. Gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud. And there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. 
The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights for the director of music on my stringed instruments. This is God's word. Father, as we now walk through these verses, would you give us understanding, not just for our mind, but also for our hearts that will then spill out into your lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So Habakkuk, on one hand, is one man's journey with God through a very dark day. But it's also a book that begins to teach us that those who follow in Habakkuk's steps, that they can, they can encounter God in, in dark days. They can learn of God in dark days, so much so that at the end of this book, Babylon is still at the gates. There is no harvest And yet the the man is rejoicing, and he's waiting on God. And so my hope for us as we read this is that we would begin to understand what God is like and how he works, and that something marvelous about God is he shows up in dark days. That Just think about the Bible. In the evil days of the flood, God showed up for Noah. In the oppressive days of Egypt, God shows up through a Savior, Moses. In the agony and the doubts of suffering... God shows up for Job. Time and time again, the God that we get in those moments is not the God that we expected or even the God that we prayed for. And so it's not some sort of self-fulfillment wish belief, but it is real. But what I want to use Habakkuk 3 is to learn how to test if we're having a real encounter with God in dark days. What is real? What is a real encounter with God? What should it look like? What test do we put to ourselves or even others if they claim a divine experience occurs? Because you want them, you desire them, and in many times we need them, but we want it to be with the real God. So let's use three tests. Here's test number one. Does my encounter reflect the God of the Bible? Test number one. And, and we really see this in all the way from verses 2 through uh, verse 15, right? This question basically gets back to the warning of, of Sigmund Freud. If your little encounter with God allows you to redesign God, it's not the real God, right? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is light, and him then there is no darkness at all. There is consistency in his character, consistency in his behavior, What is God like when he reveals himself to Moses and then repeated other times? God is slow to anger and abounding in love. And at the same time, he will not let the guilty go unpunished. So you want to put this to the test. Does this reflect the God of the Bible? Uh, 1,500 years ago, St. Augustine hit the nail on the head when he wrote this. I think we'll have this quote up here. St. Augustine said this, If you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, It's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. I'll read that again. If you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. So let's look at verses 2 through 15 and just look at the God that Habakkuk encountered. And again, the reason we know that this is the true God and not some sort of wish fulfillment for Habakkuk is it's describing the God of the Bible. Uh, Look at just even how it starts in verse 2. He says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. 
I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. Uh, some of your Bibles maybe said, uh, translated this expression, Lord, I have heard the, of your news, or I've heard of the reports. Now, what's interesting is, remember, he has been in dialogue with God in prayer. We see that in chapters 1 and 2. But when he says, I've heard the report of you, he's saying, I've heard about you from your word. I've listened to the news. I know of your fame because of what I have been instructed. And he knows this God, and he says, now I'm standing in just in awe of who you are, Lord. And what he does in the next several verses is he just rehearses the great works of God. Um, many of you grow up in church. I grew up in church, uh, and you know I would I would be able to maybe repeat the stories of David and Goliath. I could maybe tell you the story about Daniel and the lion's den. Uh, I knew the story of Noah. In, the, in many ways, I could re, I could retell to you the fame of the Lord from my children's storybook Bible. But what Habakkuk is doing now in these verses, it's gone from his head down to his heart. He's heard the stories, he's, he's heard the theological stories, but now he's beginning to believe in this God at a deep, true level. And now at the point where he says, now I'm standing in awe of your deeds. These aren't just stories anymore. These are revelations of who God is. And I'm beginning to come to know him and, and live by faith in him. Uh, one of the things first out of the bat, uh, out of the shoot here about God in verse two is that uh, he's praying, repeat them, repeat your past work now in our day, in our time, make them known, which is a great prayer as you're praying for your city and your family and yourself. God, show up now as you showed up then. But then he says about God, in wrath, remember mercy. The, the true God, the God of the Bible, has perfect wrath and perfect mercy. He holds these together in a way that you and I can't. He's perfectly just, and he's full of compassion. So he's not some sort of weak Grandpa Santa Claus in the sky, nor, nor is he some sort of mean ogre ruling heaven. He, he holds these character qualities perfectly, perfect justice, perfect love. Which is why you would tremble before someone that can hold those together. And then he starts describing this God. So in verses 3 through 7, he says, This is God is the one who is sovereign over his enemies. In verses 3 through 7, they basically begin to describe how God brought his people out of Mount Sinai. Uh, these are the Hebrew people delivered out of Egypt, go to Mount Sinai, they get the Ten Commandments, and then eventually he's going to lead them through a series of events to bring them into the promised land. And when he, he just mentions geography. <laughs> God came out of Taman, the Holy One, from Mount Paran. This is the, the mountain area, the geographic area outside of Mount Sinai. And when, when we saw him, his glory covered the heavens, and his praise filled the earth. And then he's describing the plague and the pestilence that followed his steps. So this is the miraculous God who saved them. He mentions nations, two of which that tried to prevent God's people from thriving, Cush uh, and Midian. And that God worked through the, enemy, through the enemies in order to bring his people to safety. God is sovereign over enemies 
those enemies failed, supernatural things occurred because this is the God of the Bible. And he's saying, I've heard of the news. I believe. Do it again for us. And then in verses 8 through 15, he begins to say, this too, this Lord, he is the Lord of creation. And he starts describing how God has control over rivers and seas. So much so that he asks the question, were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Could be when he parted the Jordan River. Uh, Was your wrath against streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? That's probably the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of Egypt. And he begins to describe God's power. You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you in writhe. I mean, I lived in Colorado. I looked out. Every day I looked to the west. The mountains were still there. But when Habakkuk is describing God, it's like God can just move a mountain any day he wants. Can you imagine waking up someday and looking out the Rockies and be like, where do those go? This is the, the mountains are subject to their creator. Verse 11, it says, Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lighting of your flashing spear. There's a, a miraculous story where God holds the sun in the sky in order for battle to succeed for his people. In wrath, you strode through the earth. In anger, you threshed the nations. And verse 13 says, You came out to deliver your people. This is, you know, so if he's the Lord over his enemies, he's the Lord over creation. One thing that's really particular to remember is that he saves his people. And that would be, I think, one of the most impactful things that Habakkuk is beginning to understand with Babylon sitting outside. If I've trusted in God and I've believed in God and I am a child of God and he is my king, he's going to deliver me in time, in his time, not my time. In his time, I'll read verse 13 again. Listen to that. You came out to deliver your people. All those things that he did, all those miracles, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You came, you you even crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. This is the true God. He saves his people through judgment, from judgment. God saved Abraham and David and Moses. God showed mercy to Hagar and Miriam and Hannah. Whether it's through barrenness or enemies or famine, God saves his people. And we know from previous sermons, right, the last couple of weeks, what makes someone a part of God's family is trust in God, faith in God. It's not that these are sinless people. I think that's one of the most shocking things as you grow up and you start reading the same stories that you read as a kid. You're like, these people are all sinners. I thought David was this perfect person. And then you read the story about he he takes another man's wife and puts him to death. You're like, what? Noah, the righteous man, he gets, he's a lush. Story of drunkenness. Abraham, he... Lies about his wife and puts her in really in harm's way. And you begin to realize that God, when he saves its people, it's not because of their righteousness, but because of his mercy. They put their trust in him because they know they can't trust themselves. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God that Habakkuk is encountering. So test number one, if you're wanting to encounter God and you're wondering if something is happening in your life, the first test is, does my encounter reflect the God of the Bible? 
So, for example, you can find many supposed Christian Bible teachers and preachers who will claim to have had visions of God. They claim to have miraculous powers from God. But on their lips, you'll catch something. They will present a God who never allows disease or suffering. Which is contrary to the life of Job. Contrary to the life of Jesus. Or they'll claim with enough faith, you can be rich, famous, and happy. And yet so many of God's best people in the Bible are marked by trial and persecution and pain. So again, if someone makes a claim about God or experiencing God that undermines the God of the Bible, beware. If, if, if it's on TV, turn off, right? Be ready. If you, keep, if you stay on that channel or you stay in that church, they will take up an offering soon. Right? We, we, in many ways, this first test is a test of the mind. Right? And, and we will be better able to put this, this encounter or this claim to the test if we know what God's Word says about God and about how He works and who He is. We, you will grow in your ability to discern truth from error if you know what the Bible says God is really like. And then you'll be prepared to call out a dangerous idea or a dangerous teaching out there, but also in here. Like this, this test isn't just so that you can like be like, hey, that guy's a heretic. Like there are, in my life, I will get senses. Like, Lord, is that you? Do you, do you really want me to watch TV all day on Saturday and eat all the food I want and ignore my family? I think the Lord is in that. Like we know that, Right. But we need this truth to test our own sense of what we think God is leading. Actually, come back next week. We're going to start a new prayer series on just how to pray and what can we use from prayer. And we're going to talk a lot about next week about learning to discern. But this is the idea. It's not just to test those claims out there. It's also to test the claims in here. Have I really encountered God? Am I encountering God? Or is it something else, something worse? But the next two tests are just as important. Necessary nonetheless. And I'm not sure. Test number two is this. Did God wreck you? Look at verse 16. Is this the God of the Bible? Test two. Did God wreck you? Look what happens in verse 16. He has heard. He has responded. He has recited the God that he has encountered. And then he said, I heard. He says, my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Habakkuk says, decay crept into my bones. He says, his legs began to tremble. He says, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity. Right, so Habakkuk says that he had this fresh understanding of God, this fresh revelation of God. That's verses 2 through 15, and, and also those earlier chapters. And in that experience of God, in encountering God, it had this like physiological effect. He was undone. He, he couldn't ignore the reality of God. It shook him to his core. Remember, this book begins with Habakkuk demanding answers of God. And now we have him at the end of the book, having encountered God. He says, I'm waiting on you now. I'm not fighting against you. I'm resting in you. It's much the same way of the encounter that Jacob has with God, where he literally is wrestling with God. And when he has an encounter with God, that fight is over. He is undone. I remember my first true encounter of God, which I think was a true encounter of God. You test it with the questions I shared with you earlier. 
right? A preacher helped me understand the love of Jesus in suffering on the cross. Oh, I knew that Jesus had died, but I had never really felt or really understood that Jesus had died for me. Right? I could give you the theological truism, Jesus died for the world. But I, I couldn't yet say that Jesus had died for me. And in that moment, I did. I felt the reality of my sin before God. And, and I felt the reality of my own judgment, that I deserved hell. And yet, almost simultaneously, I was overwhelmed by the love of God. God loves me. Prideful, arrogant, lustful, lying Matt Proctor. He loved me. And I, and I, and I, I resonated with verse 15. Like I was trembling. I was shook. Like he loves sinner me. Consider some other encounters of God in the Old Testament. Uh, Job, who wrestled with God for 40 chapters, 40 plus chapters with God about his suffering and his despair. In Job 42, verses 5 and 6 God shows up. God does the, when he shows up, God doesn't answer any of Job's questions, but he gives, God gives Job his presence. And he says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. He says, therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. The prophet Daniel had multiple encounters with God. On two different occasions, he described them this way in Daniel 7. He said, this is the end of the matter I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. My face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. And Daniel 8, he tells another encounter. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days, and then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. A couple of thoughts. One recurring thing that you will see, find in Scripture, is that those who have real encounters with God... They're not itching to run out and tell the world. It's personal. It's meaningful. It's very humbling. Um, I would encourage you, if you, if someone is really quick uh, to write a book or start a speaking tour of their divine encounter, uh, remember that that's probably not the best subject or best case. A true encounter just humbles you, quiets you, it wrecks you. One such person who kept his encounter with God close to the cuff, both metaphorically and literally, was Blaise Pascal. You guys ever heard of Blaise Pascal? Uh, most of you know Pascal is a brilliant mathematician. That's where you usually first hear about Blaise Pascal. Uh, but he also followed Jesus Christ his whole life. And he had a, a remarkable encounter one time while he was alive. It was so vivid and so real. He actually wrote it in this little piece of paper. And then he sewed it into his clothes, and he kept it with him his entire life. But he never told anyone about his encounter with God. At his death, they pulled out this encounter that Blaise Pascal had with God. And I'm going to read to you some of what occurred when he encountered God. He even gives us the date and the day. He says, the year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23 November. From about half past ten at night until about half past midnight, Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy, 
This is eternal life that they know you, the one true God and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I left him. I fled him, renounced, crucified. Let me never be separated from him. He is, he is only kept securely by the ways taught in the gospel. Renunciation, total and sweet. Complete submission to Jesus Christ and to my director. Eternally enjoy for a day's exercise on the earth. May I not forget your words. Amen. Now let me give you a few words of both caution and encouragement under this question. Did, did God wreck you? First, a few words of caution. Uh, there are a few branches of Christianity that really, really, really push for mystical experiences with God. In fact, they will cue up the music, lower the lights, and turn on the fog machine. And they'll try to stir up affections, maybe even encourage people to fall over or do all sorts of unique physical manifestations. Uh, I'm not saying that God can't or hasn't shown up in such places, but I am saying be cautious of manufactured situations. When God shows up, he doesn't need any of our help. Uh, a few years ago, there was a big revival. It's about 10, 20 years ago. It was filled with some wild physical behaviors. And, and one minister summarized well how to discern the real from the counterfeit. And this was his statement. His name was David Hope. He says, I'm not that concerned what happens to people when they fall down. I'm more interested in what happens when they stand up. Right? If God wrecks us, if God humbles us, when we get up, we're going to be new people, living new lives. And then the uh, wise and saint Oswald Chambers adds to this situation, the best measure of a spiritual life is not ex ecstasies, but it's obedience. I think I pray for that as a pastor. Like I do pray that you guys have powerful encounters with God that are special, unique, uh, seem to confirm the truth of his word. But the mark of that encounter will be as you come up and as you stand with the Lord, is there obedience and love for him? A second caution I want to say is uh, don't judge your encounter with someone else's. Uh, you might not have a time in your life where you couldn't breathe or you couldn't stand or you might not have a time where you were fully trembling. Uh, you might not have a time where you couldn't sleep for a week. This is the, your caution, this is the word of caution, but truth, I think God does interact with us, but it's personal, it's meaningful, and it's humbling, but it won't be like anyone else's. And so don't judge, like, I must not be a great Christian because I haven't had, like, I don't have something sewn into my clothes where I encountered God. And yet at the same time, I want to encourage us to pursue God in such a way that he does routinely wreck us. It's a strange prayer, but add it to your prayer list. Lord, would you routinely wreck me, humble me, bring me to the ground. The Psalms describe and call out all the time, seek the Lord, seek the Lord, seek the Lord, desire the Lord, humble yourself before the Lord. Uh, James, uh, who is the half-brother of Jesus, which, by the way, to me, that is, the, that is the best argument for the validity of Christianity in the world, is that your half-brother begins to worship you as the Lord and Savior. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote this in James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. He says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. 
Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Leave this verse up. Just, this is a, maybe a bit of a bold statement, but I think it's true. Let me assure you, because of God's character, if you memorize this passage, you make this a prayer on your lips regularly. You pray for God to come in your life. In due time, God answers the prayers of his people. He will wreck you. Do you pray for God to humble you? That is a prayer request he is very happy to answer. And when we, after you pray it and it experiences, you'll probably say what Isaiah said. Woe is me. So let me just ask some questions. Has God ever wrecked you like, like this? Has he ever brought you low? Have you ever felt the gravity of his glory in your life? Has the God of the biblical stories been the God that you've become to encounter personally? If not, you might still be waiting to start a relationship with God. If it's still just a head thing, if it's still just an out there thing, you, you maybe need to come and do what James is saying. Come and grieve over sin and humble yourself for the Lord and then he can lift you up. And so maybe that's your prayer today. Lord, work on my, work on my heart. But I would also say that if you've been a Christian for an extended period of time, and it's been a long time since God has wrecked you, could you ask God to do that again? Maybe ask why it hasn't happened. Is there pride? Since working on this sermon series, I've been trying to pray this more regularly in the last couple of weeks. Uh, he's given me a few opportunities. I don't know if I've been totally wrecked, but he's, he's thrown a few uh, crashing balls in my life in a good way. Seek the Lord. All right, so two tests so far. A true encounter reflects the God of the Bible. A true encounter wrecks you before God. But there's a third test. And it should happen in connection with these earlier two, right? God doesn't only wreck us. He leaves us rejoicing on the back end. So that's the third test. Did God rejoice you? Right? Are you rejoicing after being wrecked? Now that maybe sounds like a strange way of saying it. Uh, if you think re uh, that God rejoicing us sounds weird, you might also like to know that the 18th century preacher, Jonathan Edwards, he described this as God happifying his people. <laughs> I like that. If he wrecks us, if he brings us low, he brings us up. He happifies us. And that's what's described there at the end here. So he's been wrecked in verse 16 and then verse 17. He says, though the fig tree does not bud, there's no grapes on the vines. Though the olive tree crop fails and the fields produce no food, there is no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Like, don't miss what he just described in verse 17. Nothing has gotten better. I mean, this is an agricultural setting. He says, there's no figs. There's no grapes. There is no olives. There is no fields producing crops. I mean, this is a war-ravaged land. Farmers are scared to death to go out to their fields. The war, if you guys know how ground wars work in the ancient world, when those soldiers come, they're just eating all the stuff that you had planted and that you plan to reap. So nothing is better. It is just as bad in chapter 3 as it was in chapter 1. In the midst of this great misfortune and suffering, Habakkuk is experiencing supernatural joy. 
He's, again, this isn't wish fulfillment. He has faced the facts. Nothing is better. But he sees who God is. And then he describes, I love this, the, the nimble faith. That somehow he has the faith that he can be like a deer on the high places. And if you've ever seen a deer running in high places or a goat or a sheep, you're like, how do they do that? Habakkuk has this nimble faith to work through, walk through this tough terrain with an unseen power. Again, it's not so much the effects. It's not so much that his prayers have been answered. He's been able to encounter God. And that's why I want to look at how he describes God. He describes God in three different ways. It's his trust in this God that gives him joy and faith and the ability to walk. First, he just uses the term Lord. Verse 18. I will rejoice in the Lord. In most English Bibles, if you're looking in your Bibles, it's probably those letters are all capitalized. And the reason they do that in English translations is to tell you that they're using the covenant name of God, Yahweh, and some languages pronounced Jehovah. But he's rejoicing in the covenant God of the Bible. This is the personal God who has chosen to reveal himself to Jacob and Mary and Lydia. And the invitation for you, if you want to rejoice in a dark day, is that you too can know this covenant God, this personal God who comes to real people in real time and gives them real hope. And when you do it, there's this, there's this happiness that wells up that you can't find on the earth. I was reading 1 Timothy chapter 6 yesterday, and I was warning about the dangers of trusting in riches. And it tells those who are rich in this age, give it away. And then it says, then you will have life that is truly life. And that's what Habakkuk is describing. I know this Lord, so I now have the life that is truly life. And so I can rejoice in my covenant keeping, my personal God. Then in verse 18, it goes on and says, I will be joyful in God, my Savior. So he's the covenant Lord, but he's also God, my Savior. Habakkuk is putting his trust in the God who can save him. Somehow in the midst of that political mess and the economic downturn, and even with the enemy at the gates, Habakkuk knows that God will save his people. Like, how much more so is that, is, can we, on this side of the cross, know that God is our Savior? That God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Like, our greatest enemy is not Babylon. Our greatest enemy is not Iran or Hamas or Ukraine or Russia or whoever. Like, and it, the greatest enemy is in our own chest. The sin and offense against God. And Jesus defeated them. He's our Savior. If you look back just to verse um, verse 14, what a uh, kind of a verse of foreshadowing. He's talking about the enemies. In verse 14, it says, With his own spear, you pierced his head. What did, this is how God always defeats the enemies of God. He uses their own weapons against them. And for our case, God uses the cross, the symbol of shame, embarrassment and criminality, God uses the cross to save people from their sin. The weapon of destruction ends up being the weapon of our salvation. And so we can rejoice in God our Savior. And then in verse 19, uh, he describes him as the sovereign Lord is my strength. Or some translations might just say the Lord God, Yahweh God. This expression just recognizes God is all-powerful, that nothing happens without his permission. And since God loves you, you can trust him and rejoice in him on the hardest of days because he does not waste a hurt 
and he will not leave you in your tears forever. So you put these ideas together, we're going to get like a central message in in Habakkuk chapter 3, that a true encounter with the God of the Bible will leave you wrecked and rejoicing. A true encounter with the God of the Bible will leave you wrecked and rejoicing. Let's just tie these together, wrecked and rejoicing, because let's talk a little bit about what happens if you are neither wrecked nor rejoicing. What does that that look like? you might find these people at church. They've never been wrecked and they never rejoice. And so they show up at church and they have all the platitudes in the world, but no real faith. They're the ones that you say, how are you doing? They say, God is good. God is good all the time. And you're like, okay, do you know this God? Uh, they're, they're the people that do a lot with their lips, but not a lot with their real life. They're people who give a little money to the church, but never, or to causes for the poor, for global missions, but never till it actually hurts. Just a little over the top. It's empty. Uh, Jesus called people who honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's somebody who's been neither wrecked and isn't rejoicing. Uh, but sometimes you can find people who are just wrecked. Uh, I'll give you an example. My brother-in-law, uh, he grew up in... Uh, got a, a more traditional uh, church, and he was seriously praying hours and hours and hours every night about his sin and his struggles. And he went and he, he asked his priest, said, what can I do with my sin and my guilt and my shame? And the priest said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm praying all the time. I'm asking God to forgive me. And the priest said, well, just keep doing that. Like he just left him wrecked. He didn't talk about there's forgiveness, there's, there's hope, you can rest in the blood of Jesus you know, and so you'll run into some people who are in like a permanent state of woe, a permanent state of depression. They complain about an evil world and they live in fear. But if you push them a little, they're just angry, actually, and self-protective. Because they're not been given a God-given humbling. It's just kind of a self-pitying counterfeit. And so you have people who are wrecked but not rejoicing. And so they need, like, we want them to meet, encounter the real God who loves them and is their sovereign Lord and the one who can save them. But of course, there's always there's a side where you're you're not wrecked, but you're always rejoicing. Um, these are the people who love to jump from one spiritual high to the next. They they got to be happy. They got to be at the happening place, the happening church. They often bounce from church to church, and if they go to a church that confesses sin or invites silence, that feels uncomfortable. They just want to be happy all the time. Uh, these are the people that they, they never stay long enough to visit the people who are in the nursing home or to visit those who are sick. They, they want the joy without the humbling. Can you imagine a church filled with people who are hungry to be both wrecked and rejoicing? Who have just encountered God and been humbled by him, by his greatness, his goodness, his mercy, and then lifted to be like, he's forgiven me. He loves me with an everlasting love. He's going to bring me home. I want to follow. I want to change the world. I I suspect if we get that, what Habakkuk is describing in his song, we would be like the people who first heard the song, the Battle Hymn of the Republic that we sang. So in many ways, the Battle Hymn of the Republic song is serving a similar sort of purpose as Habakkuk 3. So the, the writer of that song is a woman named Julia Ward Howe. And uh, she wanted people to seriously ponder the great God of the Bible with her opening stanza. Did you catch what we sang? I'm going to read the first verse again. 
It says, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Now, she didn't literally see it. She's talking about, I've read the Bible and I see what's coming. The Lord is coming. And then he says, he's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Like we sing those kind of up sometimes, but those verses should chill us to the bones. This is the image of God's final judgment. It actually comes out of Revelation chapter 14. God's enemies are going to be destroyed. Like grapes, their bodies will be thrown into a wine press. And that wine press is God's wrath. And God is pressing out the blood of his enemies. Right? This is not your typical, positive, encouraging, Caleb sort of song. And then the chorus, glory, glory, hallelujah. Right? Julia Ward knew that God's final judgment and vindication was a day that we, to long for and to bring us joy. But it's in verse 4 that we see that Julia's song wasn't just about the future. This is what she wrote. She writes, in the beauty of the lilies... Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free while God is marching on. So don't miss what Julia is doing. She says, yes, believe in the birth of Jesus. Yes, believe in his death for you. But he goes on, he says, but these truths must change us. Right? So for Julia Ward, she wrote this in 1861. And she wanted every Christian to rise up and be willing to die to see freedom for African-American slaves. That's why she wrote this. If we recognize that Jesus died to set people free, will we be willing to die to set people free? Now, in our day, because Christ died for us, what are we willing to do so that other people know that Christ died for them? But she says, God marches on. God will have his way. You either get caught up in God's work or you will die in the wine press. And so now I just pray for us in our day that God would raise up a generation of people who truly know him, right? Who've been wrecked by him and come out rejoicing. But then we begin to move out with this nimble faith that we're able to tread tough terrain in difficult places, putting our hope in the Lord, the God of our salvation, and the sovereign Lord. And again, it's going to start with us individually and corporately seeking the Lord for such an encounter with him. So let me pray that that happens among us. Father, we pray that in your mercy, those who have never encountered you for the first time, that they would. Uh, maybe it'll look like Habakkuk. Maybe it'll be different for them. But Lord, we pray that they would come to know you truly. Uh, the God who wrecks us, uh, reminds us of our sin, uh, what we deserve. And then when we begin to understand who Jesus is and forgiveness and life in him, there's a joy that comes out of that wrecking that is just so beautiful. Uh, I thank you for just the men and women here who've told me their stories of God, humbling them and then filling them with joy and so many faithful saints that are still uh, treading high places with nimble faith in the great God. Uh, and so do, uh, do your work in us again and again. We pray that we would seek you uh, every day. Lord, have your way in us, humble us, uh, happify us, uh, that we might serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.